Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at Grove City College and a faculty affiliate of the Program on Economics and Privacy at Scalia Law School. He has published papers in Public Choice, the International Review of Law and Economics, the European Journal of Law and Economics, the Review of Austrian Economics, and many others. I'm so glad to welcome to the show, Dr. Caleb Fuller. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Fuller. Well, thank you for having me, Adi. I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about your background and your latest book, No Free Lunch, Six Economic Lies You've Been Taught and Probably Believe. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, I am an assistant professor of economics at Grove City College, which is a liberal arts and sciences college in Western Pennsylvania. Um, Grove City was also my undergraduate alma mater, so I'm blessed to be able to um, teach where I was first learning economics myself. I'm at Grove City. I teach several different microeconomics courses. Uh, I teach econometrics. I teach law and economics, public policy. And I also teach a seminar course in what's called organizational economics, um, which explores why it is that firms, nonprofits, and other sorts of organizations arise and populate uh, market economies. Um, throughout my research, I've, I've sort of explored many different topics, but I think they're all united by the fact that I've been driven by um, a search to better understand the causes and consequences of society's institutions, or to put it another way, society's rules of the game. Um, I've been heavily influenced by both Austrian economics and the so-called new institutional economics, and um, a, a sort of focus on society's rules of the game are, is a prominent theme in both of those uh, economic traditions. Um, I think uh, examining institutions is important because <clears throat> What um, the economist Ed Phelps calls mass flourishing is only possible uh, for the human race when we have a highly specialized and extensive division of labor in society. Um, and it's through those further increases in the division of labor that human beings can um, you know, reach their full potential and also experience um, uh, material prosperity. And that division of labor is only possible in turn when certain institutional prerequisites are, are in place. Um, and so I guess that's a little bit of an introduction to me also uh, saying why it is that I ended up writing this book. <clears throat> right. So in the book, you go over six economic lies, and I'd like to briefly go over each of them to really understand the thesis of the book. So the first lie that you talk about is entitled Destruction of Profit. So can you please tell us a little bit more about this concept and why it is, in your words, a lie? Yeah. So the first lie that I examine in the book is uh, destruction is profit. And you'll notice that all of the lies that I discuss in this book are just three words, and they form the title of each chapter. This particular phrase, destruction is profit, um, comes from the great 19th century French liberal economist, Frederick Bastiat, um, who used this phrase in an 1850 essay entitled that which is seen and that which is unseen. And um, you know, some of your listeners may have heard of Bastiat's famous parable of the broken window in which he describes a, a shopkeeper who one morning finds that uh, a teenage vandal in his village has, has thrown a brick through his window. And understandably, our shopkeeper is upset by this. And the other members of the community are encouraging him, comforting him, telling him it's going to be all right. But then there's someone else in the crowd, a little bit of a smart aleck who pipes up to um, offer an alternative interpretation of what's going on. And he says, actually, um, this vandal's action is not something that we should lament. Instead, it's something that we ought to celebrate. 
And that should hopefully strike you and your listeners the wrong way. Uh, but the reason that he gives for this somewhat odd claim is he says that now, uh, as a result of this vandal's behavior, our shopkeeper is going to have to spend some of his income repairing the window. And that income is going to go to the local village glazier or, or window maker. And our window maker's income is going to rise. And he's going to take some of his newfound income and spend it on, um, let's say, our, our local village suit maker and purchasing a new suit that he had had his eye on. And that will in turn cause our suit maker's income to increase. Um, but of course, the, the benefits don't stop there, um, says the smart aleck. Our, our suit maker will now go to our local shoemaker, the cobbler, and he will spend uh, on a new pair of shoes, causing our cobbler's income to, to rise. Um, so that smart aleck is expressing the idea that by destroying something, our little community here, our little village is in fact going to profit. And what Bastiat was arguing against in his 1850 essay was that there is a there's a really important flaw in the smart Alex reasoning. Um, and that flaw simply has to do with us forgetting that all resources have alternative uses. Um, so if let's re rewind the clock for a moment and examine what might have happened if this if the uh, vandal had not um, engaged in this sort of destructive act, well, then our um, shopkeeper would have still had an unbroken window, but then he could have used that same money that he used to repair the window on some other um, end or goal that he was trying to achieve. Perhaps he would have gone out and bought himself a new suit um, and then generated that same sort of uh, progression that I walked you through a moment ago. Um, and even if our shopkeeper does not spend the money, but instead saves saves this income so that it goes into credit markets. Well, that contributes to a lower lowering of the interest rate, which in turn facilitates the ability of businesses to um, engage in new investment projects. Uh, so that's why it is that Bastiat says, hey, your common sense intuition that we're not going to make ourselves better off by destroying things is in fact supported by by the economic um, reasoning, the economic logic, uh, what the smart aleck forgets to think about is opportunity cost or the value that we sacrifice um, whenever we make a choice. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to the economy a, a lot more broadly than just this example. I was going to say when I was listening to your, your anecdote there was, well, I mean, the, the shopkeeper really only had two things he could do with that money. He can either save it or spend it. If he was going to spend it, mm -hmm. it was going to make its way through the economy again. And then if he saved it, um, it was, I mean, he would, he would either put it into a bank or invest it. That bank would then loan out that money and continuing that's that right. progression, so on and so forth. So obviously that's the case, but I think this speaks more broadly to, for example, when we look at arguments for, uh, taxing, um, extremely wealthy individuals at very high rates or, you know, wealth taxes or taxes on billionaires, et cetera. Um, where it's it's assumed that you know if if a billionaire has billions of dollars that they're not using, the the most optimal use of that money is to take it away in the form of higher taxation and then redistribute it, and somehow th this is going to create higher levels of um, you know economic growth from the bottom down. But the thing that I always uh, I always get confused about, and I wanted to ask you about this as well um, as an economics professor is, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but that that wealthy person again either has that wealth as equity in, in, in his business or has it saved or invested. And isn't that just getting loaned out again? So if he keeps the billion dollars in the bank, he still has a billion dollars. It's just the bank has then loaned out something like 90% of that. And it's gone 
all the way back through. They'll either loan it out to a homeowner or a new business who'll spend that money all through the economy. So it generates the exact same outcome. Yeah, yeah, I would largely agree with your analysis there. I think the um, arguments that you are describing are generally stemming from people that have a Keynesian view of the world. And, and in that Keynesian view of the world, it's really consumption spending or spending on final consumer goods that drives economic activity. Uh, and what that view of the world ignores is the, the production side of things, where are all these goods coming from. And in order for us to have a wealth of consumer goods at our disposal, there has to be prior acts of saving and investing in capital goods, those goods that, that allow us to produce consumer goods. And whenever we say tax billionaires, um, we, we are going to reduce the amount of saving and investing. And as a result, we're going to reduce the, the number of capital goods. And in the long run, we will end up reducing the number of consumer goods that we have at our disposal. So I think in summary, it kind of goes back to the title of, of my book that there's no free lunch. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's, that's obviously the other side. Um, you know, take take a look at what happened with Elon Musk this week, where yeah. he, he sold 10% of his, his um, share in Tesla. That money is no longer invested in his company is no longer going to innovation and research and has now been paid out. So yeah, obviously there's, there's a, there's a double-edged sword there. Um, so the second lie that you talk about then is lunch is free. So I, I have a feeling this connects back quite closely, but could you please tell us a bit more about the second lie as well? Sure. So yes, it does connect quite closely because um, each one of these lies that I discuss ultimately comes down to a failure to recognize the idea of opportunity cost. Um, and if there's really one phrase in economics that captures the economic point of view, it's the well-known expression that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and I use this expression in my book to describe the uh, consequences of imposing price controls, specifically price ceilings. Uh, price ceilings are when the government stipulates uh, to sellers a maximum price that they may charge for their for their wares uh, or for their services. <clears throat> um, and the reason why I connect this to the idea of there being no free lunch is because a lot of times the economically ignorant will blame the existence of prices for our inability to consume as many goods as we would like to consume. And so they reason that if we could only suppress prices below their market levels, that people would be able to consume uh, more of the goods and services that they, that they value. Um, however, what I show in this chapter is that the price system is a really indispensable uh, system that human beings have devised for allocating scarce resources. <clears throat> All right, so um, you're, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the basics of, of supply and demand, but if, if a good becomes more desirable relative to its limited supply, then its price increases. And that price increase does a whole host of things. It forces buyers to um, better economize on their use of the thing. It also tells other uh, producers that this would now be something that would be profitable for them to produce. Okay, And so the price system plays this extraordinarily important role in making sure we are always allocating goods to, to the people who value them the most highly. Um, when we impose price controls, we don't allow that price mechanism to function the way that it does in an unhampered market. And because prices are no longer allocating scarce resources, then something else ends up um, doing, doing that allocation uh, function. So I, I can give you an example from this chapter. Um, 
1945, shortly after World War II, Paris had reinvigorated its price ceilings on housing units, what, what is popularly known as rent control, a policy that is um, increasingly popular in our own day. And um, this caused there to be a shortage of housing. There were more people looking for housing than there were housing units available. And so you really had to be kind of a, a Johnny on the spot whenever a housing unit opened up if you wanted to become the next tenant in, in that unit. And so um, soldiers who had returned from the war when they were at work, their wives actually sometimes spent the day uh, stalking the oldest, sickest looking Parisians that they could find. And they would follow them around and write down their habits in a little notebook. And then um, whenever, say, an old man didn't show up at his favorite cafe at, at his normal time, then, then the wife in this in this scenario would would run to his apartment unit and ask them if perhaps there was a room available on the assumption that he had in fact passed away. Okay, so um, notice that the the true costs of acquiring an apartment in the Paris case haven't actually fallen. Yeah, the, the money. It's true that the money price is lower, but now you have to pay not only the money price, but you also have to um, incur this this cost associated with searching. Not to mention the fact that you're you know violating the dignity of of, of your fellow man in the process. Yeah, um, one of my favorite examples with price controls is um, what happened with the American economy um, in the 1960s and 70s with um, Richard Nixon, where, I mean, as I'm sure everyone knows, um, there was a, a mass implementation of price controls. And the the very next in the very next few weeks, we saw farmers drowning a lot of their um, ba baby okay. chickens. And that, that that might seem odd and confusing, but I think the, the primary reason for that was that the, the cost of chicken feed um, now didn't warrant the, the profit that they, they got from selling the chicken or selling the eggs. So it was no longer profitable for the farmers to, to, to raise the chickens. So essentially, they just drowned the chickens. So as like, like you talked about, this unintended consequence of people following around old people um, waiting for them to pass away so they can get their apartment. Same thing with farmers drowning their chickens um, en masse. So the, yeah, that's, a, that's a great example. Yeah. So this this um, th this whole um, slew of um, unintended consequences uh, uh, obviously isn't something that anyone can predict. Um, so the third lie that you mentioned is intentions guarantee outcomes. So can you tell us a bit more about this as well? Sure. Well, I think that's a good segue into this this third idea. Um, which is that I think that the economically naive believe that intentions guarantee outcomes, or another way to put that would be that it's only a lack of political will that ever um, causes us to fail to achieve our, our goals from a public policy perspective. Uh, but what I show in this chapter is that um, oftentimes we fail to achieve our stated public policy ends because we are bumping up against economic reality or economic law. And the reason um, why our public policy goals do not always, or our public policy means do not always achieve our goals um, is because all public policy changes the relationship between costs and benefits uh, that people face. And in fact, that's, that's the intention of public policy, that it would change people's uh, behavior. Well, sometimes when we change the relationship between the costs and benefits that people face, they behave in ways that are unexpected or um, in ways that would be very difficult to trace out without the aid of economic reasoning. Um, so an example that I give in this chapter, for instance, is that uh, in U.S. states that have the most stringent occupational licensing laws, 
We also tend to find the highest rate of deaths by electrocution. And you might think, well, what is the connection between those two? Well, an occupational licensing law just makes it a little bit harder for someone to enter a particular profession. We would call that an entry barrier in economics. And that, in turn, limits the supply of people who are working in that profession, which then gives rise to a higher price. So services that are subject to occupational licensing tend to um, have a higher price than if they did not. And so some people then begin searching for substitutes because the price of, ele of an electrician is artificially raised. Well, one of the substitutes that people find for uh, professional electrician services is uh, probably no surprise, you know, a DIY YouTube video, right? Where you're, you're trying to figure out how to rewire your house on your own. And tragically for some people that, that can go awry and they end up electrocuting themselves. So you, you can see just how perverse this outcome is from the perspective of the politician who's passing the law. They're passing this law with the intention of preventing unqualified people from messing around with dangerous wires. And what is the outcome? Exactly the reverse, that people begin to, to mess around with wires, um, even when they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so the, the intentions guarantee outcomes, it, it applies um, broadly across the, the political economy in the sense that um, a lot of political policy um, is driven by is driven by political motivations. So, um, for example, uh, in, in an election season, a politician wants to come up with proposals that he can get up on a stage or in a speech he can proudly advocate for. You know, he can come up with a slogan and his crowd cheers and he, and he can rile up a, a voter base, a passionate voter base. Um, and so this this what may be politically advantageous may not necessarily reflect the best outcome economically or, or the best outcome for the market or society as a whole. So this is this is a place where I see it very difficult to resolve um, where because because what's going to sound good. Um, it, it's always going to sound amazing if a politician stands up on a stage and says, we're going to give you free college. We're going to give you free health care. We're going to uh, lower your rent, um, all, all sorts of things. But then the. I mean, this 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 sort of rhetoric obviously is very appealing. If you have student loans and a politician tells you they're going to cancel your student loans, well, why wouldn't you vote for that politician? Um, but that that may not necessarily be the the best outcome for society in general. So this is this is a place where I find it very hard to reconcile the advantages and disadvantages, and especially given our current political system. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and I would just add that you know the, the politician. Uh, when he implements those policies is not going to face the discipline of profit and loss that a private firm that is implementing some new product or experimenting with pricing is going to face. Right. Um, so I think this is, again, a great segue into the fourth line of the book, which is titled Exchange is Exploitation. So this really speaks to the heart of many arguments against the free enterprise system and has been talked about a lot lately. So can you please tell us a bit more about this lie? Yeah. So the fourth lie is the idea that when people engage in exchanges, at least some of the time, those exchanges are exploitative. And, I, and I'm very careful in how I define that word in this chapter. Um, exploitative or exploitation is a word that I'm using to describe harm uh, accruing to one party and benefit accruing to another party. And economists have denied the idea that exchange, when it is voluntary, could ever be exploitative, and they have denied it for several hundred years at this point. I would go so far as to say that 
um, if, if this point that economists have made is incorrect, then we can also just scrap the rest of economic theory and start over. It really is that, it really is that foundational. So why is it then that economists are so confident in this idea that when exchange is voluntary, it's going to benefit both parties, or we might say it's mutually beneficial. Um, and that has to do with the, the following logic that if I am choosing to exchange with you, then I also could have um, chosen to do otherwise. And so I'm only going to engage in an exchange with you if I anticipate that I will be made better off. And the same is true of whoever my exchange partner is. Um, then you ask, well, how can both parties be made better off uh, by exchanging <clears throat> two, uh, two items or two titles of property? And the answer to that is that people value goods subjectively. So the value that I place um, on an apple when you and I exchange uh, an apple for an orange is um, going to differ from the value that you place on that apple relative to the orange. And so we can both be made better off by, by switching our property titles to, to the things in question here. Um, now, the reason why this, uh, this lie is important to co combat is because it oftentimes undergirds policies which harm some of the world's poorest people. Just to give you one example, um, there have been policies such as import bans that the world's most developed economies have sometimes placed on items that are produced uh, by sweatshop laborers in the third world, so-called sweatshop laborers. These are laborers who are working of their own free initiative. They're working voluntarily, but they are also earning very low wages and they're um, operating in poor working conditions relative to the uh, wages and working conditions that characterize those in the Western developed nations. Um, and so the thinking would be that we can punish companies that employ such, such workers uh, and, and somehow thereby benefit the workers themselves. Well, that's, that is a completely misplaced um, idea because what ends up happening is we depress the demand for those goods that the workers are producing which in turn depresses the demand for their labor and either causes them to take a pay cut or causes them to become unemployed. And we know because they are voluntarily exchanging with this company that, that this um, employment opportunity must surpass whatever their best relevant alternative is. Uh, and for those in the underdeveloped world, their relevant alternative is usually something that is very unappealing from our perspective. Things like um, working in agriculture, which tends to have a higher injury and, and fatality rate, or perhaps working in illicit activities such as prostitution. Um, so even though the wages that they earn are lower than the wages that characterize developed uh, countries, they're still uh, made better off because it's better than whatever their relevant alternative is. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I totally see your your point and making this argument, and I think that applies um, even even home at home as well as abroad. Um, one of the most relevant cases where you hear about exploitation is with regards to a minimum wage. So um, obviously, there's there's been a push in Washington for quite a few years now for an increase in the federal minimum wage. Several states have implemented um, higher minimum wages than the seven twenty five, which is the current federal minimum wage, um, which um, it, it, at its heart is designed to, well, it it, uh, it promotes this idea of um, ensuring or protecting the worker from being exploited by their employer. And so uh, the, the, again, there's, there's the unintended consequences that we spoke about before, which is that people whose labor is an employer does not deem the person's labor to be worth that price um, every hour they are incapable of finding a job. Um, 
in, in addition, they can enter the job market so as to progress through and you know work their way up the ladder, so to speak, um, and so on. So, um, do you think this 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 point about exchanges exploitation um, would apply at home to the minimum wage and, and similar policies as well? Oh, ab- absolutely! I would say it does. Um, you know, economists have long argued that in a free market, people's wages um, cannot long exceed their productivity. That is the value that they're contributing to an employer. Um, And you can't change that fundamental economic reality by stipulating that they get paid a higher money wage. You can, however, change the probability that they will actually find successful employment because no one wants to intentionally hire someone that um, will be a losing proposition for them for them monetarily. So yeah, I think it's it's absolutely absolutely relevant. <clears throat> right. Um, so this brings us to the fifth lie, which is called trade is war. So this one really caught my attention in particular. It was a bit different from all the other ones. Um, and I wanted to ask you more about why this seems to be the common perception. Yeah, well I think that many people have a sort of um, collectivist mindset, or you could say a a zero-sum mindset. And by zero-sum, I I simply mean that they think that uh, a benefit, let's say, to the people of America is has to be equaled out on the ledger by a cost to people in China or vice versa, right? That when someone living in China benefits, it must mean that someone in the United States has uh, suffered a harm. Uh, and so, you know, we can only improve our prospects as Americans if uh, people in other countries are experiencing diminished prospects. I think a lot of people have that sort of mentality. Um, but if you understand that exchange is not exploitation, as we just discussed, then you can also understand that that principle is going to apply when we scale it up to the international level. Um when people in the United States voluntarily exchange property titles with people that live in China, that's no different from an economic perspective than when you know you and I both do it as people who live within the geopolitical boundaries uh, of the United States. Okay, um, and so people that cheerlead for policies that would um, reduce the amount of trade that occurs between nations, so-called protectionist policies. They end up cheerleading for policies that make us poor, worse off. I think the easiest way to see that is to kind of work through a thought experiment that I discuss in this chapter, where I say, let's imagine that instead of talking about the people that are within inside of a country, let's imagine simply talking about people inside of a single family. And let's imagine that the father of this family gets a lot of protectionist ideas in his head And he says, hey, we would all be made better off if we were able to keep the income in the family. Uh, That way, we're never spending on people that are are external to us. We're never seeing an outflow of our resources that way. Um, It'll have the added benefit that everyone in our family will always have uh, a job, (laughs) right? So I think we could pretty quickly see that if a father was to implement this sort of policy, this family standard of living would fall. I mean, if they wanted to become educated, they would have to independently reinvent or rediscover any of the knowledge that, they, that they're seeking. Uh, if they want to have a large wardrobe, they would have to spend all of the time uh, creating their own clothing from scratch. And we could similarly think about what would happen to their food supply and on and on and on it could go. Um, and in fact, we have some interesting real-world empirical examples of this. Uh, During the mid-20th century, there was a family 
that fled uh, persecution of the Eastern Orthodox in, in Moscow, and they fled to Siberia, where they were isolated for a couple of decades. They didn't have any contact with any other humans. I think it was a family of five or six. And during that time, their standard of living fell, fell tremendously. They had something like three or four different foods in their diet. All of their clothing had essentially turned into rags. They were living in this one-room log cabin. Uh, and that's what happens under conditions of what economists call autarky or economic self-sufficiency. Now, of course, if we completely isolated the United States, we wouldn't see living standards collapse to that level because there's 320 million of us. We could still trade with one another, but we would nonetheless see our standard of living diminished relative to what it could be if we were able to trade with the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, so two things here. Um, first of all, the, the idea that you speak of, which is that trade um, will not take place unless both countries benefit. And so it's a net positive to, to both nations, um, not not one nation benefiting at the expense of another. That was the original idea behind a, a laissez-faire economic system that Adam Smith initially proposed. So in his economic model, there were no tariffs, there were no barriers to, to trade across different countries. Um, he, his argument was essentially that this invisible hand of the market, which ensures that both no exchange takes place unless both parties benefit, would apply it across nations, exactly as you said. So um, would that mean that you would then be in favor of removing all tariffs and trade barriers, trade agreements altogether? Yes, certainly other things held constant. Um, that would only make the world not only more freer, but ultimately more prosperous uh, because it would allow people in each country to specialize in whatever their comparative advantage is or whatever they're the lowest cost producer of. Um, and the, the world, the world's output would rise and then we could begin trading that extra output that we've produced. So, yeah, I mean, certainly we would be we would be a wealthier planet if that policy proposal were to go into effect. Perfect. And your sixth and final lie is that markets are unregulated. So although deregulation is stressed by many on the right economically, virtually everyone upholds the need for some sort of regulation to, say, protect property rights, public safety, etc. So could you please tell us more about this so-called lie and why you feel that so many have come to believe it? Sure. Well, I think this lie is probably the most subtle and may even be the most pervasive I think it's because many people that I've spoken with seem to equate um, the idea of a free market with a market that is unregulated. Well, regulation come, can come in many shapes and forms and sizes. And usually, however, when people use that word regulation, they're referring to just one narrow type of regulation, and that is government regulation. Well, government, or excuse me, a regulation is just um, a, a, a rule or a, a stipulation or a penalty that is going to alter people's behavior. Um, and it turns out that free markets come with regulations built in, as it were. And the regulation that I have in mind is the profit and loss system. So the idea here is that if an entrepreneur uh, purchases uh, scarce factors of production and combines them in such a way as to produce something that people do not value um, with sufficient intensity, that that entrepreneur is going to earn economic losses. And if he persists in this sort of activity, uh, he's going to eventually be driven out of the marketplace and he'll have to take his, uh, have to take his place among the wage earners in society. Uh, and so that threat of earning losses is what regulates his behavior and causes him to seek out ways that he can better satisfy consumer preferences. Um, 
there's some other things that we could add onto that, sort of an additional gloss, um, like the so-called discipline of repeated dealings. The discipline of repeated dealings is just the idea that hey, if you if you try to sell me something that I don't value, or perhaps even more strongly, if you try to say defraud me in an exchange, then I can uh, refuse to ever deal with you again. I can communicate um, your your behavior to anyone else who might want to purchase from you, say by leaving you know a, a bad review online, and that sort of threat of the loss of future profits kind of hangs like a specter over the exchange and disciplines your own uh, behavior there. Uh, you know, someone this past week was was trying to take me to task online and say that, hey, uh, actually fraud should be punished through the legal system. Well, I'm not so interested in you know normative arguments about what people should or should not do. But the reality is that taking uh, these sorts of fraudulent exchanges into the courts is not always um, it's not always a profitable thing to do. Like, for example, if you brought me um, a cheap flank steak, when in fact I had ordered a filet mignon from you, yeah, in this sense, you have defrauded me, but it wouldn't make sense for me to take you to court because the benefits of doing so would be far outweighed by the costs. And so what disciplines your behavior in that case? It's not the legal system. Instead, it's this discipline of repeated dealings, the fact that you'll probably not be able to earn future profits from me if you behave in this way. So that's really interesting. Um, the idea of uh, regulation um, free from government, just from society as a whole. So um, obviously, you know, if you take your car to a mechanic who does a poor job, you might still have to pay them that one time. But you're going to tell your friends about them. You're never going to go back to that mechanic, obviously. And over time, if he keeps providing poor service to all of the customers that come into his garage, he's not going to have any customers left. So either he's going to go out of business or be forced to improve his quality of service. Um, and that's because there are competitors in the market. So definitely this this idea is, is something that's not as often thought about. Um, it's very easy to say, well, if if someone is, is defrauding their customers or um, say providing subpar services, we can either A, standardize the level of service that has to be provided um, through a regulatory body. Um, you know, for example, there has to be a standard certification for all mechanics or, you know, we punish anyone who is um, who has, you know, provided a subpar or lower level of service than a customer would have expected. So not only is that difficult, extremely costly to um, extremely costly to enforce and also limits a, a lot of trade, it puts a lot of barriers to entry. It also probably will not be as effective as the free market will be in the long run. So. Well, those are the, the six lies covered in the book. So if any of you are interested, the full title, once again, is No Free Lunch, Six Economic Lies You've Been Taught and Probably Believe, available now on Amazon. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Dr. Fuller. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you again for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.